Heavenly Father, we're coming near the end of our year, Father. We mark years, seasons, days, weeks. We keep tracks of these things, Father, because in your word, you've given us uh, these markers not to count time up, but as our as the prophets explain, Father, but to count time down. Uh, we're counting down, Father. We're counting down to the end of this age. We're counting down to your son's return. Uh, we're counting down, Father, until the kingdom comes. Uh, every year that passes, Father, is a year that we're closer to knowing that kingdom is seeing you and to seeing the kingdom on earth. It doesn't have to wait for another year, Father. We know that. It can come whenever you're ready, but, but we know it's uh, inevitable. Uh, Father, so I thank you for this year that we've each had uh, as it comes to its close here in a couple months, Father, we just uh, want to reflect already on the ways in which we've been able to use this year to serve you. And perhaps if there's still opportunities left in this year, you'll be giving those um, ideas to us, Father, directing our steps so that we can make the most of this year. And then it'll be followed by another year, Father. And uh, for some of us, Father, this year will be uh, uh, the year to come, maybe a year that's momentous and dramatic and offers all kinds of new experiences or opportunities or trials or tests, maybe the beginnings of things and maybe the ends of some things. And then for others, Father, it'll be one more year among many, and it may just drift along. But Father, I pray we don't look at time in that way, that we look at every day as the the day you have created for some good purpose, and we are setting our minds to serving you with that day, and we are making the most of every one of them. And Father, when we consider the story of a man like Saul, who was given a time to serve you and did not make the most of it. It should help us remember, Father, that you uh, you extend opportunity, but you don't you don't guarantee that those opportunities will last forever. And I ask, Father, you let us have a sense of the fleeting of time and the the sense of urgency that the times bring, and you'll just think, give us, Father, the the courage to take what you've given us and do the most with it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as my prayer indicated, Saul's days as king are numbered. The prophet declared that the king was no longer God's choice as king, and yet he hasn't removed him yet. And nor has the Lord even removed the spirit from Saul yet, though that's coming as well. Nonetheless, Saul's reign will come to an end. And meanwhile, he has the power that God gave him. He'll keep it for a time, and he does it to serve a couple of purposes. We looked at this last week. First, we mentioned that Saul's successor, David, is not yet prepared to assume the throne. He's too young. He's inexperienced. So God needs some time to season this young man. And ironically, Saul will be David's antagonist for that seasoning process. Secondly, the Lord wants to show the people of Israel the error that they made in selecting such a man as Saul, a man they selected based on the flesh. And so the Lord is going to spend a few decades with Saul in the ruling position that he's given him, even though he's already declared that the end is coming. Then, when we entered into the beginning of chapter 14, we were introduced to Saul's son, Jonathan. I said, Jonathan now takes a major role in the story through the end of his life. The last time we saw Jonathan, he was leading a part of Saul's army against the Philistines. In fact, the army that Jonathan had was so small, it consisted of himself only. He had his armor bearer there, sort of as a caddy, to help him with the process. He leaves his father secretly, probably because his father wouldn't have wanted him to go if he tried. And we're going to look at what Jonathan does in battle tonight. Uh, before that, though, let's, let's remember why the Lord is elevating Saul's son to prominence in the story. Normally, a king's son would be expected to follow in the footsteps of the father. He would be the heir apparent to the throne. 
But we also know that the Lord is not going to give Jonathan the opportunity to assume his father's position. That the dynasty of Saul is going to be a dynasty of one. And then it's going to come to an end. And yet, the Lord is going to give Saul a measure of success for a time. And likewise, Jonathan. Jonathan's going to become an instrument of the Lord. And the reason the Lord is doing this is he needs someone he can bless the nation of Israel through, according to God's promises. But he can't let Saul be the one to receive all of the success because Saul's no longer working for the Lord. Saul's working for Saul. And that becomes readily apparent as we study the rest of the chapter tonight. Jonathan also becomes an instrument to expose the sin of his father. So as Jonathan rises in prominence, Saul's jealousy and pride and ego begins to become more and more apparent in the face of his son's success. He'll later have the same experience with David. This will become a prominent part of the story for the next several weeks. Saul is important for one reason more than any other, and that is of a man who can know the Lord and yet go very wrong in his life of following the Lord. And as he goes further from the Lord, he becomes increasingly paranoid and fleshly and sinful. And that transition becomes a kind of Hamlet, an archetype of the mad man who is made so by his own sin and his flesh and God turning him over to that. And this is a story about a man who knew the Lord, not a story about a man who didn't know the Lord. And that makes it all the more important for us to pay attention to it because there is a lesson to be learned about that principle even as we study the example of Saul. For now, though, let's go back to the story of Jonathan. Jonathan brings about a military victory, but does so in a way that exposes his father's growing impatience and rash behavior. And as he enters into the battle by himself, he believed the Lord was willing to grant this victory, and he figured that he just needed to step out in faith because no one else was doing it, and he was willing to see what the Lord would do with it. Let's pick up there, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. So here's the plan. Jonathan, operating in faith, is going to attack with just himself and his armor bearer by way of that canyon we described last week where he has to go down a steep incline to a wadi and then literally climb up the other side and right at the top of that, he comes right in front of the garrison. I mean, he'd be the worst military position that he could assume, the most vulnerable way to attack, but also the most surprising probably. This man is operating in faith, but also I want you to notice he's not operating in blind faith. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of assuming that all faith must be that kind of faith, blind faith, with nothing to stand on, with no indication whatsoever of what God is going to do. That's not what he's doing here. His faith is one that is based on the knowledge of the Lord and on the word of the Lord. He knows, for example, that the Lord has declared that the Philistines were under divine judgment. So someone's going to beat them. And he knew that in the past, the Lord had delivered great victories to Israel, even with very small armies. Witness Gideon, for example. And he knew the Lord was willing to give signs, quite often, to his warriors who were seeking his direction on how to proceed. Gideon again, among others. And he knew that you're going to have to ultimately act in faith, that is, to act without 
all the evidence you might like to know that what was going to happen is going to happen. In other words, with all the facts and all the knowledge, you're still going to have a gap. And at the end of that gap, you're going to have to take a step of faith. And if you do that, well, then you'll see the Lord's response. So this is not a man acting with no insight, no indication, no idea, purely out of hope or chance. This is a man who has some grounding in the Lord, in his character, his history, his word, and he's acting in that, but with faith. So he takes what I could call a calculated step of faith. When you talk about acting in faith, I think this is the concept that the Bible puts in front of us. It's not a gamble. It's not wishful thinking. It's not like playing the lottery, as I said, and you don't expect a windfall simply because you play with hopeful expectation. You act in faith in a way that means you work with an understanding of God's promises, an awareness of his will revealed, and a confidence in his ability to direct your steps. So that even if you take a slightly off step from where you should go, he's capable of redirecting you along the path. Jonathan's acting in this way. So he announces to his armor-bearer, I want to attack this army. And it's interesting that the armor-bearer doesn't say, what? What the armor-bearer says is, I agree. I will accompany you. He tells Jonathan, number one, follow your heart. Number two, he says, turn yourself, and then I am with you according to your desire. A better translation of that into English would be, do what your heart is inclined to do, and I am with you. And my heart is as your heart that's less literal but more to the meaning of what the original Hebrew is getting across so he's saying uh, you do what your heart says I will be with you in what your heart says my heart will be as your heart so Jonathan acts in this bold faith but notice also he doesn't repeat his father's mistake of acting impetuously without clear direction from the Lord so he divines this test by which he's going to know the will of the Lord he will make his way into the canyon they'll walk out into the open at some point down below and expose themselves to the men who are watching from on top of the hill. If the men at the top come down their side to engage with Jonathan in the bottom of the wadi, then he says he and his armor bearer will conclude that the Lord is not giving the garrison into their arms. They'll fight the two or three or four men that come down because they're going to have to, but they won't proceed up the mountain to go after the rest of them. On the other hand, if the enemies look down the crevice and see them and beckon them to come up, well then that will be a sign, he concludes, that God is granting the victory. Now, that sign makes some sense, actually, militarily. If you have the high ground, as the garrison does, and you are confident in your strength and in your position, then you would move down to engage those who would come against you before they had the chance to reach you because you have the backing of men behind you, you have the confidence of your position, you'll attack from a position of strength, but you'll take the fight to the enemy, generally. If you're fearful, if you're not confident that you have overwhelming force, if you're concerned that you're in a bad position, you're going to stay in place, hunker down, and use the defenses of your position as your best defense. So Jonathan's sign is really a determination of whether the enemy feels confident or whether he feels weak against what he sees. And a weak enemy, that is to say, if the garrison looks down on two guys standing in a crevice and is afraid of them, that's an indication that the Lord was preparing to defeat them that their hearts are already inclined to run or to be defeated. So in verse 11, when both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer put some to death after him. The first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, was about 20 men within about half a furrow in an acre of land. 
And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. So you can see how it happened, right? The Philistines see Jonathan. They recognized, oh, look, Hebrews coming out of the holes. They're everywhere. And so they call Jonathan up, and I love the thing they say, come on up, we have something to tell you. It's just a ploy. It's an excuse to get him closer. Then they would have attacked, presumably. But Jonathan recognizes this as an answer from God. God has answered the sign, just as Gideon with the fleeces and so on. So he goes up first by himself. Notice hands and feet. He's crawling up the side of a hill. This is not a great starting point from which to do battle. But he's not worried. And as he reaches the top, somehow, in hand-to-hand combat, he and later his armor bearer are able to kill 20 men by themselves. Clearly God is on their side. They're in a small field, which means they're in an area that's out in the open in front of wherever the garrison was placed. And two of them doing this by themselves is an impressive victory that clearly shows God is doing the work. We can see that, but this is just the beginning. Right? This is just the skirmish before the battle. At this moment, we're told the ground begins to tremble. Now, as it reads in verse 15, at first it may just sound like euphemism, like people running and the ground is, quote, trembling. But before the verse is over, you become aware that, no, literally it's quaking. God has created a small local earthquake right at the point of the garrison to coincide with Jonathan's arrival. It unnerves the Philistines and it takes away their heart or interest for the battle. And instead, it says they start to flee for their lives. Clearly, the Lord is working to bring a victory here for Jonathan. It's it's a great reminder of the fact that when you consider the numbers he had in relationship to the enemy, what matter does that have when God can control natural forces? There's nothing that can stand in his way. And that was really the faith that Jonathan reflected. Now, did Jonathan know an earthquake was part of the plan? No. And that's that gap I was talking about earlier. In our understanding of how God is going to do what he's going to do, we don't have all the data. So we have to take on faith that he will do something and he has the power to do it. But how much gap is there really when you remember what God is capable of doing? It's not a huge leap to understand he can control earthquakes and he can control the weather and he can move hearts of men and he can do any number of things. If he's got that capability, then the gap is really not about can he. The gap is which one of the many methods will he use? That's the issue of faith. Faith is not will he or can he, it is how will he. It's about this time that we hear the men in Saul's army are noticing from their vantage point the commotion in the Philistine garrison. Remember, they're in Gilbea, the town of Saul, which is only about one and a half miles away from the garrison. And as we read, Saul has some men watching the garrison and they report back. This uh, whole piece here sort of represents a good example of fog of war. Verse 16, Now Saul's watchman in Gilbeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they, were, they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. When Saul talked to the priest, The commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow and there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, well, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. 
So let's break down what happened, beginning with Saul. Now Saul's been killing time, instead of killing Philistines, in Gilbeah with about 600 of his army, now turned to bodyguards, watching him sit under a pomegranate tree. Remember? And this being only about a mile and a half away, it's easy enough for him to have scouts looking out, uh, watching the enemy in the garrison. Now remember why he's watching him, though. He's watching him in case they attack him. He's got no plans to attack them. He only had 600, and this is a man who's not operating in faith. So 600 clearly is not enough to defeat the camp of the Philistines. While they're watching, they notice, as we're told, the confusion that's taking place now in the Philistine camp. Philistine warriors are in distress. Many are fleeing. They're running here and there. There's earthquaking going on. I don't know that they could see Jonathan and the armor bearer in the midst of it all. That's not indicated here. They just see the outcome of it all. Saul hears this and he recognizes he has a chance to seize the day. His adversary is in disarray. Perfect time to attack. But Saul's approach to entering the battle is so very different than his son's approach was. First, Saul's first step was what? To number his forces. So his first concern is, do I have enough people? He orders a count of all the men that he has because he's known he's been losing guys left and right. He's not sure who he still has left. When the count comes back, they realize they don't have Jonathan and his armor bearer. That's not mentioned here for any reason except to indicate that Saul had a suspicion at this point that his son may have already gone into the battle. Not that his son would have defected, but his son might be ahead of him. That comes up later, and we'll we'll come back to that. By comparison, what did Jonathan do? When Jonathan thought about doing the same thing, he wasn't worried about the numbers at all, and he even said so because he said, God doesn't need many or few. It doesn't really matter to God. Really, all that matters is, does God want us to go? He said the Lord doesn't care. He just wants followers. Secondly, Saul wants the Lord's favor in order to enter into the fight. So what does he do? He calls for the ark of the Lord to be brought out. My English Bible says ark. Yours may say ark as well. But a number of Hebrew manuscripts, including the Septuagint, indicate that what Saul asked for here was not the ark, but the ephod. Now remember, the ephod is the robe that the priest wore. So the ephod was this elaborate priest high priestly robe. But why is he asking for the ephod? Because one of the elements of the ephod was a pouch. And what was kept in that pouch? The urim and the thummim, the stones that the high priest could throw like dice to discern the will of God concerning a yes or no question. So they would have a yes or no question in mind. They would ask the question, throw the lots. This is all stuff God proclaimed to do in the law. It's part of what the priest was allowed to do to discern God's will. And based on how these stones turned, we don't know exactly what they look like, but based on how they landed, you could get a yes or a no. You could get a, one of two answers was possible. And using that, they could discern God's will because they understood God was in control of everything that happens in life to include how these rocks turned. So apparently... Saul has asked that the high priest arrive and come with these two stones so that he can discern God's will about entering into battle. So far, so good, I guess. But then we're told in verse 19 that Saul notices the commotion in the camp growing stronger as the army is melting away after the earthquake and everything else. And you can get a sense of Saul's attitude is is feeling his emotion right now. It's like, come on, hurry, get the stones, get the stones. It's almost over. They're running away. Forget this. I'm going to just go into battle. He's dying to get to win the victory, and it's fleeting. I mean, there won't be a a victory moment if there's no army. In verse 19, he tells the priest, withdraw your hand. His hand was in the pouch, ready to pull out the stones. And he's saying, no, 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 forget that. Keep your hands away from the pouch. I don't want to hear the answer. Now, why do you think Saul doesn't want to hear the answer to the question of whether he should enter battle? Well, the answer, of course, is he doesn't want to hear God's refusal. 
He doesn't want to take a risk that the answer that comes back from God is no. Because he's made up his mind. And he doesn't want to lose the opportunities. He's determined to press forward. One commentator remarked that when Saul should have been acting, he was waiting. And when he should have been waiting, he was acting. By contrast, what did Jonathan do? Well, he set up a test for the Lord so that he would be clear on whether he would go forward or not. He acted waiting for that test. And in all of it, he followed his heart, as his armor bearer said. Following your heart means remaining sensitive to the leading of the Spirit from moment to moment. The Lord was fully capable of speaking to Jonathan, even without the test, even without the stones. He just needed those things so that he could be confident he was hearing him properly. So he acted in confidence that the Lord would direct his steps. He set up everything so that he would have to hear from God before he could move forward. The key difference is Jonathan wanted to do God's will. That's what he wanted. It wasn't that he wanted to beat the Philistines, per se. I mean, he didn't have a particular interest in doing anything apart from what God wanted him to do. His concern is to do the Lord's will. Saul, on the other hand, had only his own will at interest. He's acting out of selfishness, self-centeredness, and this heart of Saul's is going to get him and the rest of the people into a lot of trouble over the course of many years. You start to see his descent now into that selfish self-centeredness, even at the start, where he is so interested in the fight and getting credit for it, the glory for it, that he doesn't really care if God wants him to do it or not. So at this point, he leads his men into battle. Here's the irony, though. They don't do anything. First of all, before he can act, the Philistines are being scattered. And then it says they are turning on one another in the battle in confusion. So Philistines are killing Philistines, not Saul. Neither Jonathan nor Saul fight any of the Philistines at this point. They're fighting each other. And then furthermore, we're told, even those Jewish traitors that had been within the Philistine camp, they saw the writing on the wall, and so they switched sides and they began fighting the Philistines. So it was the Jews who were the traitors who began to kill And this tells us that the confusion that the Lord brought on the Philistine army only impacted the Gentiles within the army. He didn't bring confusion on the Jews who were within the Philistine army. And then lastly, to add insult to all of this injury for Saul, you have the Jews who were too scared to do anything except hide in the caves in Ephraim, the territory in which the garrison was located. They see the Philistine army getting routed, so they emerge and finish off the job chasing the garrison out of town. So virtually everyone in the nation, other than Saul and his army, had a hand in this battle and in the victory. Even the traitors of Israel could claim some measure of the victory. But Saul and his company, they do nothing except join in the chase here at the very end. And we'll look at more of that as we go forward. But just stopping and considering what you see going on with Saul right now, you have a man whose pride and ego has become so inflamed that they're threatening to impede his sound judgment. In fact, they are impeding his sound judgment and will increasingly impede his sound judgment. He notices he was not leading in battle or even in the chase that followed. So he does something here very bizarre, to say the least. Starting in verse 24, he contrives a plan to purposely slow down the Israelites who are chasing the Philistines and in so doing extend the length of the battle. He doesn't want this to finish too quickly until he gets to the front and is able to finish the job as the mighty warrior at the head of the army. And since he's at the back and everyone else is doing the fighting for him, he finds a way to hamper his own people from chasing and winning the battle too fast and to give the enemy enough time to recover, just enough time to regroup so that he can set up a decisive battle and beat them. And in that decisive battle, then he intends to be the Napoleon on the horse. It's a cynical selfish strategy that really reveals the deteriorating nature of this man's heart. 
prideful scheming, and it has some severe unintended consequences. Look in verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All of the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his mouth his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Therefore, he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they have found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. So we're told at the beginning of verse 24, Saul's men were hard-pressed. The word there in Hebrew for hard-pressed, it's the same word you would find in Exodus chapter 3 where you see Moses killing the taskmaster over the Hebrew slaves. The word taskmaster, same Hebrew word as hard-pressed here. So it describes someone who is oppressing someone else harshly. That's the sense. Saul driving his people harshly under these conditions, ordering his entire army to observe a fast until Saul himself has met his enemy in battle and been decisive. There's an old saying that says an army moves on its stomach, which just indicates the fact that fighters need a lot of food when they're expending that much energy and they're, they're fighting every day. Otherwise, they're not going to be effective. I mean, if you go on a fast just in your normal routine, I'll bet you'll feel pretty weak by the end of the day. Imagine days of strenuous fighting and no food. I mean, it's bizarre. It's clear to everyone that Saul's order is counterproductive to the effectiveness of his own army. No one can understand it for that matter. But everyone's afraid of it. And as they enter into the forest to pursue the enemy, there's honey available on the ground, we're told, to feed the troops, food that could have easily sustained them, energy when they most needed it. But because of Saul's order, no one dares eat because Saul has said, cursed is the one who does so. And a curse means he would suffer death. Now, Jonathan doesn't know about the order, we're told, so he eats it. He's strengthened. Others warn him after the fact. You know, you shouldn't really be doing that. Dad said don't. Curse in Scripture means a death sentence. So now Jonathan has done something which would bring him under the king's pronouncement of a death sentence. And there's no recovery for a curse in Scripture. Once a curse is extended, whether by God or man, it is assured. There's no recovery. There's no appeal. No sanctuary. So Jonathan says nothing about the fact that he is under curse here, although he will say something about it later. But at this moment, all he does is comment on the foolishness of his father's edict. He remarks that the honey had been good for him. I mean, look at me, I'm strengthened. And it certainly would have been good for everyone else if we could eat it. They're faint with hunger. It's not helping them fight. And as a result, they haven't killed very many of the troops. And remember, that's the whole point of of war. If these guys live, they live to fight another day. So the hope is to crush them and not have the, the problem of this enemy in the future. Now, in this moment, the Lord uses Saul's sin to exact a revenge for his impetuousness. And as only God can, he will find a way to remove Saul's son from the throne. And here it is. Saul's own words bring a curse upon his son. And as a result of that curse, his son will die with him in battle, bringing an end to Saul's dynasty. Saul's sin had an even wider consequence, though, for the people. It leads the army going out with Saul. It leads them into sin as well. Look what follows, verse 31. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahai Jalon. 
And the people were very weary. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. So the Israelites move ahead with the fight, even though they're hungry, they're weak. And in one day's time, we're told they fight, they pursue the enemy. This is from the day in which they left the forest. So from that point, one more day of fighting. In the cities that are mentioned there, Michmash to Ahijalon, that's a distance of 15 miles in rough hill country. So that would have been a difficult trek on a full stomach in peaceful times. This is an unimaginably difficult task on an empty stomach in the midst of war. 15 miles through rough hill country. But they do it. Eventually, by God's grace, they win the battle. And as they come into the camp of the fleeing Philistines, they are now so hungry, they fall on the captured animals like prey. They have no restraint. They butcher the animals quickly right there on the ground. And, what, and it would appear they go at eating the animals to include the blood. And we're saying they didn't follow the Jewish dietary rules that required they drain the blood from the animal entirely before they eat the meat of the animal. In fact, modern butchery is done exactly the same way. The basic process of slaughterhouses is to hoist the animal up and to drain the blood out of the animal before the animal is butchered because you don't want a bunch of blood in the meat. Well, these people don't have the time or interest of doing that. So they're violating the law that God gave. So a rule that a man gave that God did not give causes the people to violate the law of God in trying to keep the rule of man. And the result is they're driven into sin by Saul's selfishness and his senseless restrictions. When the word comes back to Saul, he says, roll a big stone to me, which is a way of saying, let's put up an altar. And he says, the people are sinning. I want this to stop. Once again, though, he intervenes in a self-serving way. And notice the pattern. You have to see it almost between the lines. He commands the people to bring the animals to him. Then he would slaughter them for them and then distribute the meat back to them personally. It's obvious he wants to put himself in the center of the action, right? It's, it's like the despot that takes all your money and then gives a little bit of it back to you, expecting you to just be terribly impressed by that and very thankful that he's handing your money back to you. We call that the IRS. <laughs> Think about how many people are grateful to get back money from the IRS every year. That was always your money. You just gave it to them for a while. Why are you so thankful they gave some of it back? The idea is that kind of concept here. He could have just told them, don't violate the law. Slaughter the animal properly. He didn't have to put himself in the middle of it, but he wants to be in the middle of it. To accomplish the task, it says he had to build an altar. Now, throughout Scripture, you see godly men building altars. They do it to sacrifice. That's what an altar is for. An altar is a place of sacrifice. It's not just the table in front of a church. You've heard me say this before. I'll repeat it for anyone who's new. If your church has a table and you call it an altar, please stop doing that. There's only one sacrifice for all sin. It's been made. You don't need to make any more sacrifices, so we don't need any more altars. It's just a table. In any event, he builds an altar. And this altar, principally, would be used for sacrifice as a place of worship. But Samuel wants you to be sure you don't miss the point of what's happening here. And he adds his commentary there at the end that this is the first time Saul has ever bothered to make such an altar. He's making one now because it's convenient to his selfish purpose, not because he had some genuine desire to worship the Lord. 
He could have been doing that at any point in the past. What he wants right now, though, is this scene where he's in charge of butchering animals and magnanimously handing out the meat to the hungry people who are hungry because he made them hungry. Everything about this period of Saul's rule has revealed a man slipping further and further from worshiping the Lord, following the Lord, concerning himself with the Lord's will, to becoming accustomed to the role of king and to becoming determined to receive all the glory that he can possibly get for this role. And rather than using his position to lead Israel into greater obedience and worship of the Lord, he'd rather have them concern themselves with worship of him, not directly worshiping him in the literal sense, but more of an idol worship, if you will, like we worship our entertainers or politicians or whomever. He just wants to be in the center of attention. But his rash behavior has not ended yet. Verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. In verse 36, Saul's ready to run down the hills and prosecute the attack all the way now. It's at night, so he's ready to fight at night. Not an easy thing to do, a kind of dangerous maneuver, actually. But he wants the spoils, you notice. There's no commentary here about carrying out the Lord's will, vanquishing the enemy of the peoples. No, he seems drunk with the prospect of capturing more booty. It's about, there's more stuff down in the camp, let's see what else we can get our hands on. So his motives in this whole process of the battle have shifted from an existential concern over preserving God's people to simply the goal of personal gain. It's become clear that the overriding force driving Saul is his pride and selfishness, which is appropriate, by the way, since he was chosen according to the flesh. Now he's just acting according to the flesh. It fits. But before he can begin the attack, Ahijalon, the priest, who apparently has accompanied him down into the battle, he turns to the king and he says, you know, maybe you should consult the Lord before you just launch into another attack. So in verse 37, he tells Saul, let's draw near to the Lord. That phrase, let's draw near to the Lord, that's a phrase that means let's worship the Lord or seek his favor. At which point, and this is my sense of the text, Saul reluctantly agrees to engage in a moment here of consultation with the Lord. So he says, Lord, am I supposed to go down there? Tell me I'm supposed to go down there. But the Lord doesn't answer. Now Saul's stuck. Now you know why he didn't want the priest to take his arm out with the rocks earlier. Because everyone now has heard the Lord fail to answer. So having consulted the Lord for permission to attack, you can't attack now if the Lord hasn't given that permission because everybody in the crowd is interpreting the lack of answer as you don't have the right to go. So what do you think that leaves Saul thinking? He's not very happy. He's very upset. He needs someone to blame. And Saul looks for an explanation for the Lord's silence. You notice he doesn't blame himself. Instead, he assumes that someone has violated his order to eat or to fast. And he asks everyone to come and give an account for who has caused the sin that has silenced the Lord. And you have to remember now, Saul's order not to eat was not God's order. It was not in the law. It was not something God prescribed. This was Saul's rule. So God is not upset at the fact that Jonathan ate. But Saul is going to use that excuse. Verse 38, Saul demands this accounting concerning the sin. Legally speaking, the rule was issued by a king. So it would have been wrong for someone to intentionally disobey this rule. Though it's not God's law, that doesn't mean it's still not a rule for the country. If the king makes the rule, it's the rule. 
But it wouldn't be a sin against the Lord and His commandments if somebody violated the rule of this king unknowingly. There's no culpability there. There's no intent to disobey the king. And there's nothing inherently wrong with the action because it's not against anything God proclaimed. It would have fallen into this gray area between sin and obedience. It's called unknown sin, and there's a sacrifice in the law for unknown sin. So if you unknowingly do something wrong, you can sacrifice for it, and you're fine. So it wouldn't be a a sin worthy of death, and it's not a sin against God's law. So Saul sets out to uncover the wrongdoer to his own rule under anger for not being able to prosecute the battle. Verse 39. For as the Lord lives... Who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Well, cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you surely shall die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So Saul makes another rash declaration. He swears, notice, by the name of the Lord, that whoever has violated his rule will die, even if it were to be his own son, Jonathan. Well, of course, he doesn't realize he's just spoken prophetically to confirm the death of his son. His foolish pride, his selfish ego, puts his son in this situation. He speaks in these broad and absolute terms, cursing on the one hand and swearing to God's name on the other hand and he binds himself by his own words to these severe actions without ever considering the implications or having all the facts. We're seeing now more and more this dramatic character change take place in this man. If he was a humble and reasonable man in the beginning, which appears to be the case, he's now a brash tyrant lacking any self-control or judgment. And one of the most puzzling things about the story of Saul is this dramatic transformation. His descent into madness has always been a point of conversation when it comes to the story of Saul. It leads us into questions like, was he ever really with the Lord? Or if he was with the Lord, just how far can someone go like this? What does it say? And in the worst cases of our theology, some conclude, well, maybe it means you can lose your salvation because how can you explain him going so far in the other direction? But notice this descent is not a fall off a cliff. It's a series of steps, each one driven by his flesh, each one fueled by pride, each one ungoverned by any seeking for the Lord. So Saul is the Bible's most dramatic character study in a man who was a man of God, but went very wrong. He began with a tender heart. He began with the spirit of God. But he favored living in his flesh, and he chose to seek his own desires. And the Bible warns us that this can happen. And that when it does, it has the power to warp our character. And to distance us so far from God, we can't find our way back in walking with him. The Bible talks about this sternly in Hebrews, and it mentions eternal consequences for the believer who goes down this path. In Hebrews 10.26, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Speaking to believers. So in verses 40 through 42, Saul asks the people to tell him, Who violated this rule I set? Let's figure out who the guy is that's causing me all this trouble. But you notice, no one wants to say anything. That's not very surprising, because all the people who ate are sitting out there in the crowd, mum, kind of wiping their cheeks a little bit from the blood, and he's waiting to find out who's at fault, and the lot falls back on Jonathan. They would be exposing the king's son if they were to say what had happened, and that doesn't seem like a wise career move, does it? And secondly, the people were opposed to Saul's dumb, stupid rule. They're sympathetic with Jonathan. It's not like they're interested in turning him over to a king that seems a little out of control right now. So they are staying silent. When he doesn't get the answer, Saul decides, I'm going to just find this out on my own then, I guess. We'll just throw lots. And he puts all the people, literally he takes the whole nation and puts them on one side. Now, the, the way this process works in general, when you have to get down to a person out of a group and you're working with a binary tool, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, you just work in a binary fashion. You break the problem down into twos. It's called a bubble sort if you're, if you're a uh, programmer. So you take everyone, divide them into two groups, and you say, which group is the answer in? Ah, this group. Okay, you guys are done. Take this group, divide it again into two. Which side's it in? Oh, this side? Okay, you guys are done. And you work your way down until you get to just one person. And so he starts with him and his son on one side and the whole rest of the nation on the other. That's a very inefficient starting point. The only reason you would start with that point is because you're pretty sure this side is not at fault and you're trying to make a point. When the lot fell to the other side, he could stand sanctimoniously with his son and say, see, it's over there, you guys. Right? Well, much to his surprise, the first set of lots are thrown and guess who the lot falls on? The side of him and his son. And as he throws it again and he sees that it's his son, Saul must have been surprised. But he doesn't show that surprise. Instead, he takes it for granted that it is his son. He, in other words, he accepts the outcome. And he goes to the issue of what have you done? Now, what the Lord is doing in showing the answer to the question is the Lord is simply answering the question that was posed. The Lord's not assigning blame to Jonathan for the bigger concern that Saul had. That was not the question put before the Lord. The question put before the Lord in the lots is, who is the one who broke my rule? So the Lord is simply answering the question. He's not agreeing with Saul's perspective. Saul created this situation by speaking rashly. He cursed the one in advance who would violate this rule. And now the Lord is simply pointing out the consequences of Saul's foolishness to Saul. And now Saul's on the spot. Will he carry out the verdict? Remember what's at stake here. Saul decided the rule, not the Lord. Saul decided the punishment in advance, not the Lord. And he has now demanded a public accounting for this violation. So everything that's happening has been the result of the king's actions, not the higher power of God. And therefore, the king could reverse anything he wants to reverse. King makes the rules. King can make the rule, he can change the rule. He can decide what to do, what not to do. A king can make any decision he wants under these circumstances because he's not bound by God or by the law. If there was ever a moment then for Saul to step back from the brink of madness and confess his sin and repent... This would have been the perfect moment. 
Because he's facing the prospect of condemning his own son to death for a stupid rule that he implemented for his own sake. And by the way, nobody in the crowd would have disputed with that decision. In fact, they would have been very supportive of the king making that decision. So he wouldn't have risked anything in terms of his rule over the people to make this decision. The only thing at risk was his own ego and his own pride. But he disappoints again. Instead, he presses the case against his own son. Essentially asking Jonathan to confess his crime. And then Jonathan does. Or essentially he explains, look, I ate a little honey. I guess I got to die. Now, it's not clear from the text if he's speaking sincerely or with sarcasm. He could be announcing his willingness to die in a completely sincere way, as if simply to obey the king. He could be a heart of an obedient son. Um, that would be in keeping with his upright character. So I could go with that. I, I prefer to believe he was being just a tad bit sarcastic, because I know that's what I would have been. Yep, Dad, I guess i got to die for that. You know, that's probably not what he would have done, but that's what I would have done. After this statement by his son, sarcastic or otherwise, he says, oh yeah, you're going to have to die. Notice in verse 44, he declares that the Lord must kill Saul if Jonathan doesn't die. So now he's added another layer to his pronouncement. He's saying, may the Lord kill me if I don't kill you. Interestingly, he gets exactly what he wants. Because Saul and Jonathan die in the same battle at the end of their life. It seems the Lord held Saul to his rash vows by taking both his own life and Jonathan's life according to Saul's words in the same moment, or in roughly the same moment. But for now, Jonathan is not going to die. He receives this reprieve made possible by the people who refuse to carry out the penalty because they declare to the king, uh, you're forgetting that it was Jonathan who won the victory for us, by the way, and he did everything by following the will of God. So I don't see how God is expecting us to kill him now. That doesn't make any sense. It's kind of ridiculous. It would also seem the, mad, the madness of the king has become apparent to everybody. So they challenge Saul's decision. And when they do that, as I mentioned a moment ago, they plant a seed of paranoia in Saul's heart. And that seed begins to grow and it consumes him over the time of, of the story of Saul. And it's fed by other events. Saul's great downfall was failing to submit to the Lord's authority as he ruled Israel. Instead, he did what was right in his own eyes. And in that sense, Saul is an extension of the time of Judges. In the sense that he is continuing to act independently of God, even as he is raised up to king. So his dynasty is cut off because he fails to serve the Lord. The Lord didn't want a king because the Lord was going to take a break and he needed someone else to rule the country for a while. He was going to rule the country through whomever had the role. It was ideally going to be through the judges God raised up, the men who brought the word. But when that was rejected, he brings a king, keeps the prophets because he still needs to give the people the word. But that king was supposed to do the will of God as well. Saul is a man who did what was right in his own heart. By contrast, his successor will be called a man who does what is a man who is after God's own heart, which is a phrase that indicates that for all the sin of David's life, nonetheless, his interest was in doing God's will. And for all the virtues of the young Saul, his interest was in doing his own will. The difference is in the will and in the desire to serve God. Verse 46, Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. This is a bit of a footnote to the story of Saul's battles, not to the story of Saul overall, but a summary of how he was in this role of warrior king. 
Notice at the beginning of verse 46 there, we're told the Lord does not give Saul permission to battle the Philistines that night, so there is no battle. He disengages altogether. The Philistines go home to their cities out on the coast, and the Israelites go back to their homes. And there's no longer a Philistine garrison anymore, so there's at least that victory. But neither is there a defeat of the Philistines either. This is the end of the battle for now. Nevertheless, Saul and his armies continue to battle. Other armies on all sides were told over the years that he spends in his uh, role as king. And we're told he inflicts great punishment or great damage on his enemies. But you notice it doesn't say he vanquishes them. This statement needs to be seen for what it's not saying rather than for what it is saying. He fights a lot, but he doesn't really defeat anybody. He just keeps them at bay long enough that they aren't uh, tormenting or raiding into Israel as much as they would have otherwise. He defends the borders, is another way to say it. But the real conquering of those enemies and the real movement of Israel into those lands and and to the peaceful state they seek doesn't come under Saul because Saul's not going to be granted that kind of victory. Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminders. Thank you, Father, for a reminder that may touch our hearts on a day to come when we're feeling a bit too full of ourselves or concern with their own desires, perhaps a day in which we've been tempted and we've fallen, or just a day, Father, when we think we're too important, and suddenly your will is not our first concern, but only our own will. And when that day comes, Father, I I pray you'd help us remember the example of Saul, that a man who starts well can end poorly, and that it never takes a, a single step to bring us there, but a series of decisions, so that even as we've made a few that may offend you and have drawn us away, we can come back, Father, for... For this is a process, and if it takes a step or two to move away, it takes a step or two to come back. But, Father, that, that turn is so important. I pray you'll always be with us through the Spirit, convicting us and holding us to you, turning us back when we stray a distance, and uh, reminding us through your word of how important it is that we remain focused on your will, that our hearts are, are led by you and not by our own flesh. And if we bring that to you, Father, in prayer, and if we make that the concern of our life, we know, Father, you have great mercy and great love for us and you will be there by your spirit to guide us and we can take a step of faith and not worry that there'll be no one to catch us father we know you there you'll be there we thank you father for that reminder and bring us uh, back in a couple weeks give us a good time of uh, family and friends and food and and just being thankful lord for all the many blessings we have and then let us come back and we'll continue in our study by your will i pray this in jesus name amen